If you would, turn your Bible. Turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. Thanks, Jake. I spoke um, this morning before the first service. I spoke with Doak. Um, he FaceTimed me real quick, and uh, they, are, they were just finishing their day at that point. Um, they've been having a great, been a great trip. Um, they finished up three days of teaching through the book of Philippians um, out in a, an area called Rajapur. Uh, they had a, a break day where they went rafting down a river and got to relax a little bit. And then today started the second conference of three days of teaching again through the book of Philippians. So they finished that up. They were back at the hotel enjoying some dinner. And um, everybody's doing great. And he wanted to, to let everyone know that they're praying for us as we meet this morning. Um, so I want to ask you to keep them in your prayers. Uh, they get back early Friday morning. Um, so they have two more teaching days, and then they head to back to Kathmandu on Wednesday, and then they start the long trek home on Thursday, uh, arriving here early Friday morning. All right, so we're going we're gonna to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 this morning. Uh, just for a bit of background information on the book of Ephesians, it's a book written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, and it was written uh, while he was in prison in Rome. And it's really a book of two halves. Um, the chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3 deals with a lot of doctrinal teaching, while chapters 4 through 6 look at the practicalities of living that out. And um, so we're, the passage that we're going to look at today is really the, the hinge of the book. It's what the two halves kind of swing on. John MacArthur likens the book of Ephesians to a car. He says chapters 1 through 3 describe the engine and the power that it has. Chapters 4 through 6 show us the road map. And he says this. He says, you can know all about the engine, all about where you're to go, but you're never going to get anywhere until you turn the key on. He says, unfortunately, it's very possible for some of the sanctified saints to understand their engine, to have a tank loaded with fuel, to understand the map, to know what the race requires, and even to be able to see the whole route, but never move because they never stick the key in and turn on the ignition. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. This section of Ephesians chapter 3 is the ignition, if you will, of the engine. And we're going to learn how to turn that on. Um, so it's a prayer by the Apostle Paul for the church at Ephesus. And I want you to, to look at it with me now. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we dig into this this morning, um, would you give us ears to hear? Would you open our hearts to learn from you, from what your word has to teach us today? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer, in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 
So before we get into our text today, I want to I back up a little bit, because if you noticed, verse 14 starts out with this phrase, this three-word phrase, for this reason. I think when we see that, it's always important to go back and see what is it that he's talking about. And so this is a tie-in back to uh, verse 1 in chapter 3, where he says the very same thing, for this reason, I, Paul. And I'll come back to this in a minute, but the beginning of chapter 3 is kind of a a detour. He takes a quick detour. Um, And so when you're looking at this for this reason, you have to go back to chapters 1 and 2. And so I want to kind of walk through those just quickly, showing some highlights of um, what what he's pointing out to the Ephesian church. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that are given to us by our Heavenly Father. He mentions in verse 5 of chapter 1 that in love, God predestined us for adoption through Christ. In verse 7, we have redemption through Christ's blood, he says, and forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. In verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will that he set for us in Christ, a plan to unite all things in him. In verse 11, he says we have obtained an inheritance. And in verse 13, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, and he begins a prayer. He prays and gives thanks for the Ephesian church, and he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they might know the hope, the glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power. His prayer here is very much about their knowledge of God's power and his love for them. And we're going to see in a few minutes that Paul's prayer in chapter 3 shifts from knowledge to application. In chapter 2, Paul goes on and continues with this doctrinal focus of the first half of the letter. He makes mention of the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, following in the ways of the world, but that by the mercy of God, because of his great love for us, in spite of being dead in our sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. And it's here we find the very famous verses, uh, verses 8 and 9, that tell us that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not anything of our own doing, Paul says, nothing that we can do. It's a gift of God, not a result of any work that we do, so that none of us is able to boast. Chapter 2 continues by reminding the Ephesians, who were Gentiles, that at one time they were separated from Christ but that now in Christ they have been brought near by his blood shed for them on the cross. We are Gentiles, just like the Ephesians, and by God's grace, Paul says we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens. And then he finishes up chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, talking about the household of God, the church that is built on the foundation of the, he says, the apostles and the prophets And then he mentions Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, he says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the church. That's us. And that right there, I think, requires us to throw out any idea that we can live the Christian life on our own. I need you, church. We need each other. And this is where I could say a shameless plug about life groups and the importance of them here at LifePoint. And 
how if you're not in one, you need to get in one, but I won't do that today. Save that for another time. But we are the church. We need one another. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, for this reason. What reason? Because of what he's just mentioned, that we are saved by grace through faith, that we are one in Christ Jesus. Because of these things, Paul wants to pray for them again. And here comes the shift from knowledge to understanding to comprehension to living it out. But before he begins his prayer, he takes a quick detour, as I mentioned earlier, verses 2 through 13. He reminds them that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed. The mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And also that through the church, this united body of people brought together by the blood of Christ, through the church, the wisdom of God might now be made known to the world. That's the role of the church, to make him known. That's why we have a team of people in Nepal right now. That's why we send dozens from our church out on mission to make him known. So now we come back to our passage for this morning. For this reason, for this reason, Paul says in verse 14, for this reason that you are recipients of great spiritual blessings in Christ, that you are saved by grace through faith, that you are one in Christ Jesus, the church. For this reason, Paul gets on his knees before the Father to pray. For this reason, Paul prays for the Ephesians to use the power that their great status in Christ provides. And it's an incredibly rich prayer that Paul prays here. What I want us to see this morning is that there's a sequence of things that take place in these verses that Paul walks through as he prays for the Ephesian church, as he prays for us. So let's walk through this together. Let's learn how to tap into that power. There's four steps that we're going to look at. The first one being this, verse 16, that we are strengthened with power. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul's concern in this prayer is for the spiritual needs of the church. In fact, most of Paul's prayers throughout his writings in the New Testament are this way. He's not preoccupied with physical needs. Remember, he's writing this letter from prison where his physical needs are no doubt many. And yet he does not pray for his own physical need. He prays for the spiritual needs of the churches that he's writing to. That's not to say that we shouldn't pray for physical needs. Absolutely not. James 5.13 says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. But our physical needs are insignificant when it comes to eternity. Paul is always concerned with spiritual needs. The inner being that he talks about here is the real you. It's who you are. It's the eternal part of you. It's your spirit, your soul. We spend a lot of time in this life focusing on the outer self. But Paul's prayer here is that the inner self would be strengthened with power by the spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
So there's this picture of us, our outer self and our inner self, and we're, the two are growing apart from one another. The outer self is aging. It's getting older. can't do the things that it used to do, even though maybe it wants to. But the inner self, Paul says, is being renewed day by day. Now, again, this isn't to say that we shouldn't be concerned with our outer selves. I think, I think we should take care of our bodies. After all, Scripture teaches that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I think the extent to which people today try to slow down, go to to slow down this aging process can be alarming. Imagine what might happen in your life and in mine if we spent as much time tending to the spiritual health of ourselves as we did to our physical health. I think it would radically change our lives. I dare you to do this. I double dog dare you to do this today. Go home, sit down with a paper and pen, and think about your average day. How much time do you spend on your outer self? How much time do you spend going to the gym? How much time do you spend eating meals? How much time do you spend showering? or putting on your clothes, or putting your makeup on for the day, etc., etc. How much time do you spend on your outer self? And then spend the same amount of time taking care of your inner self. Take the same amount of time studying God's word, communicating with him in prayer, being a part of the body of believers. What might our lives look like if we did that? The more we come to Christ, the more that we are strengthened in our inner selves and the less that we're concerned about the declining of our outer selves. Paul prays that they would be strengthened with power. There's a really cool phrase in the Greek there, and it literally means to be powered with power, to be made strong with strength. To be made mighty with might. Okay, there's some serious power here that he's talking about. And Paul's praying that God would do that in their lives. That he would do that in our lives. But this only comes when we yield to the Spirit. And I think this is key. I think if you don't hear anything else this morning, take this home with you. Yielding to the Spirit. Do we yield to the Spirit? I think this is a daily thing. Have you yielded your life completely to the Spirit? For some of you today, you may have never made the decision to to choose to follow Jesus and yield your life to him, allowing him to be king of your life. That's the first step, and I would urge you to do that today. For those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, Have we truly yielded our lives to Christ, allowing him to be king? Yielding my life to the Spirit each day. I think it's a daily thing, and I'm not talking about salvation here. This isn't a salvation thing. It's a lordship thing. I think in the church today, we're often very comfortable about talking about Jesus as our Savior. We like the idea of a rescuer. That's why so many of our 
the films that are made are all about the good guy saving the bad guy or saving the people and defeating the bad guy. We like being rescued. We like being saved. So Jesus being our Savior, that's awesome. We rejoice in that. But the Lord thing, maybe not so much. We struggle with that. I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. When I chose to follow Jesus at the age of seven, I was bought and paid for. I've been forgiven. I've been made new, but I'm, I'm not perfect. I fail and I falter, and at times I tend to want to creep back onto the throne of my heart. A.W. Tozier defines sin this way. This was a definition that a college professor of mine shared with us. Um, I think it was my freshman year in college, and I've never forgotten it. But this is what A.W. Tozier said about sin in the believer's life. He said, sin is when I sit on the stolen throne of my life and claim I am. Let me say that again. Let that sink in. Sin in the life of the believer. Sin is when I sit on the stolen throne of my heart and claim I am. If I'm not yielding my life to the Spirit daily, then my tendency is to try to climb back up onto that throne. And Paul here is asking that God, according to the riches of his glory, would strengthen us by the power through through his Spirit. Would you make that your prayer each morning as you start your day? God, I yield to you today. Do you know what the term yield means? We see those signs everywhere. Half the time people ignore them. But when you're you're pulling onto the interstate, when you're going on that up ramp, you see the yield sign at the top of it. You're meant to give way to the traffic that's already on the interstate. You're meant to drop in behind them. And I think that's how it is with, with God. He's coming along, and we're, we're deciding to join up with him. We're going to yield to him. I'm going to drop my life in behind him. I'm going to follow him. That's what it means to yield. Let him take charge. Let him be king of your life. The throne's not big enough for two kings. It's only big enough for one. Would you pray that? God, I yield to you today. Would you strengthen me, God, with power today by your spirit according to your glorious riches? That's the first thing. The second step in the sequence comes in verse 17. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Christ's dwelling place is the second step. Be strengthened in your inner self so that Christ can dwell in your heart through faith. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. As a Christian, Christ already dwells in my heart, right? And yes, you would be correct. That Christ is already in us is clear from chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. We are one with Christ. He is in us. We are in him. So what is Paul saying here? I think it's all in that little term in the English that says dwell. In the Greek, the Greek word for dwell is katoikeo. Sounds a bit more Japanese to me, but it's Greek. 
Oikeo means to be, to be at or to dwell at home. And then kata is a preposition meaning down. So kata added to oikeo means to really settle down, to be at home. Paul is saying that when you have inner strength, when you're controlled by the Spirit, when you're energized by the Spirit, that Christ is really going to be at home in your heart. Okay, we've all experienced this. We've all experienced being in a house but not being at home. There's a difference. There's a big difference. I remember moving to Wales about 16 years ago, and for what felt like years, people would ask us, have you settled in? Are you settled? And sometimes I think, we've been here months. Yes, we're settled, but in some ways we weren't. Settling in takes time. For us, it takes time. We, we moved into this tiny flat, kind of tucked away in the attic of the church. Um, when we got there, it was nothing like home. It was so far removed from any home that we'd ever been in before. But over time, we, we moved furniture around. We got it to where we wanted to be. We hung stuff on the walls. We made it our own. And we got to the point where we could walk in and throw ourselves down and you know, throw our stuff down, throw ourselves on the couch, prop our feet up on the table because we were at home. We had settled down. That's the picture here that Paul's talking about. Christ dwelling in our hearts, that he's settled down. When Christ moves into our lives and we choose to follow him, he comes in and he gets to work. He works his way through our lives, through the rooms of our hearts as we submit to him and he cleans house. Again, this goes back to the lordship thing. We sometimes... You know, we're happy for God to have, yeah, you can have this part of our life, my life, but yeah, I really want to hold on to this over here. But he comes through and he cleans house. And this can be a painful process. And, you know, unfortunately, for many, the process barely begins, much less ever ends. Christ never settles down. He never fully settles down in our hearts because we're unwilling to yield to him. When we yield our lives to the Spirit, when we are strengthened with power in our inner being, the result is that we become Christ-centered. Christ then settles down into every dimension of your life and is at home in you. With this comes the realization that the God of the universe wants to settle down and be at home in my life. How awesome is that? He wants to take up residency in your heart and he wants to be at home. He doesn't want to be cleaning cobwebs your entire life. He doesn't want to be going through your your closets that you hide from everybody else. He wants to clean that stuff out so that he can settle down and be at home so that you can experience what comes next. This means that everywhere I go, everything I do involves the Lord. So the first step in turning on the spiritual power is the inner strength that God gives us. This results in the second step, which is that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And this results in the third step, which we'll see in beginning end of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love, read it with me, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, 
that surpasses knowledge. A strong inner self leads to Christ being at home, which leads to us being rooted and grounded in love. The result of Christ's unrestricted access to the believer's heart is love. Paul prays that they may be rooted and grounded in love. Two different things here, but both referring to the same thing. Rooted is referring to plant life. Okay, like a tree whose roots grow deep, our lives should be rooted and going deep in the love of God. Grounded, again, refers to architecture or stability, foundation like what this building is built on. I think back to what Jesus said about a wise man building his house on the rock. Jesus is our rock. When we build our lives on him, we're building on love because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Paul wants us to know the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. Knowing that which is beyond knowledge, comprehending the incomprehensible, grasping the infinite love of Christ. The Spirit gives us strength to know the love of Christ when we are rooted and grounded in him. John MacArthur said this in his commentary on Ephesians. He said, Loving is the supernatural attitude of the Christian because love is the nature of Christ. When a Christian does not love, he has to do so intentionally and with effort, just as he must do to hold his breath. So in other words, breathing for us is natural. I don't, I don't think about the next breath that I'm going to take. But if I'm going to hold my breath, I have to think about that. I have to do that intentionally. And MacArthur's saying the same thing here about love. If we are rooted and grounded in love, Jesus is the rock on which we build our lives, then that love happens. We don't have to think about it. Not loving, on the other hand, is intentional. MacArthur goes on to say, to become habitually unloving he must habitually resist Christ as Lord of his heart. To continue the analogy of breathing, when Christ has his proper place in our hearts, we do not have to be told to love, just as we do not have to be told to breathe. Eventually, it must happen, because loving is as natural to the spiritual person as breathing is to the natural person. Do you know the love of Christ today? Do you know that Christ loves you? Many of us, I think, may have an inkling that God loves us, but according to what Paul is saying here, we cannot fully know the love of Christ, its breadth, its length, its depth, its height, unless we are rooted and grounded in love, which comes from him being settled in our hearts, which comes from us being strengthened by the Spirit in our inner being which is a result of us yielding our lives to him. That brings us to the fourth thing. End of verse 19. It says, That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fourth thing in the sequence is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. According to Paul here, if I follow the sequence laid down here, I can be filled with all the fullness of God. 
God lives in me and wants to fill me with all of his person, his characteristics, and his attributes. That's incredible. Wrap your head around that. God wants to fill you with all of himself. The idea of fullness is found several times in the book of Ephesians. Um, I'm going to run through them real quick. Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that the body, the church, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we've just read what he says in chapter 3, verse 19, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, He, Jesus, who descended, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Chapter 4, uh, verse 11 through 13, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. And then chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. God doesn't settle for anything less than fullness. God never intended for Christians to function on half a tank. We are to be full. God's goal in bringing us to himself is to make us like him. Filling us with himself. I don't know if you remember um, a few weeks back, Doak gave an illustration. He had a table sat here with um, a a vase or a pitcher, and he had a bunch of ping pong balls in it. And he kind of used that to describe the the sin in our lives and how he had had another pitcher full of water that he started to pour in there. And the, the pitcher of water was significant of the word of God as we pour the word of God into our ourselves, then sin works its way out. I think the same illustration would apply here. When, when we let the, you know the the sorry, got my words tangled. The ping pong balls are signif- are signify us, the light the life that we have. We're inside this container. When God stor- starts to pour Himself into us. We come to the top and we start to pour over the side. You cannot have all of the water and all of the ping pong balls in that container at the same time. There's not room for both. Now you can have part of the water, you can have part of the ping pong balls, but then you're just living life with a half a tank. God's desire is that all of him goes in. And when all of him goes in, all of us comes out. To be filled with God is to be emptied of self. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. John the Baptist said this, that he, being Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. When we yield to the Spirit and God strengthens our inner being, Christ dwells in our hearts, grounding us in love, which leads us to knowing the infinite love of Christ, which leads to the fullness of Of God in our lives. That's an engine working at full power. God can use you in ways beyond your wildest dreams. We have the power of God in us. There's no limit to what he can do through us, but we have to yield. 
We've got to yield to his spirit. We've got to be strengthened in our inner beings by the spirit. We've got to be filled with Christ. We've got to be rooted and grounded in love and filled with all the fullness of God. Then the power will flow through us. And then we have the promise of verse 20. Look at it with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us. Where's the power? It's in us. It's at work in us. When that power is at work, then God can do more abundantly than what we could ever even think or ask. Wrap your head around that. He is able and he is willing to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his glorious riches. So for what purpose? Why? Last point is the result. The result is his glory. Read this with me again, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what it's all about. The glory that is due his name. We don't do any of these things so that in the end we can say, hey, look at me. Look what I accomplished. No. All of it is for his glory. He wants to be glorified in you. He wants to be glorified in the church. Let us live lives that are yielded to him, strengthened in the inner being, where Christ is at home, where we are rooted and grounded in love, where we are filled with all the fullness of God for his glory. As I start to kind of wind down today, I want to, I want to revisit the infinite love of Christ. And I want to ask you that question that I asked earlier. Do you know that you are loved today? Do you know that? If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he loves you. If you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus, he loves you. If you're here today, you're wrestling with insecurities, if you struggle with fear, if you're in pain, will you surrender today? God is ready to walk with you. He wants to bring freedom in the midst of your pain. The Bible teaches that perfect love casts out fear. God's love for you is the only perfect love. Embrace it. Surrender to it. Yield to him. There is a love that will never fail. There is a love that is faithful and true. I know it. I've experienced it. There is a love that is wider and longer and higher and deeper than anything that you could ever imagine. That's the love that Jesus provides. He is love, 
and he loves you, church. Do you know that today? Anna Warner and her, or her sister Susan Warner were both well-known American authors of Christian novels, children's books, and religious songs. The sisters would occasionally co-author, and while Susan was writing her novel called Say and Seal, she asked Anna, her sister, to write a children's song that would be sung by a character in the story to comfort a dying child. Anna responded to this request with the lyrics of the now famous Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. The book was published in 1860. In 1862, two years later, William Bradbury, who was also a famous composer of hymns like Just As I Am and Sweet Hour of Prayer, he read this novel. He read Say and Seal, and he was so moved to add melody to Anna's simple yet profound song lyrics. Bradbury also added a one-line chorus to the song to be repeated over and over, just four simple words. Yes, Jesus loves me. The song quickly became one of the most beloved children's songs of all time. It's been translated into many languages to be sung in Sunday school rooms and children's bedrooms around the world for more than 150 years. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. I got choked up in the first service. I'm doing it again. Do you know today that Jesus loves you? Do you know it, church? Would you yield your life to him completely? There's not room for two kings. There's only room for one. And he wants to be king of your life. Jesus loves me. This I know, because his word tells us. If you're here today and you don't know this love that I'm talking about, Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants, he wants to move into your life. He wants to settle down. You know, we live in a world that's messed up and broken. We all know it. All the hurt and the pain, the turmoil, the strife. We try to fix it. We try to bandage things up from time to time, make life more comfortable for ourselves, but inevitably, those things fail. God had a better way. He has a better way. His design was that man would live in perfect harmony with him. But we messed it up. We got in the way when we chose to go our own way. And so God sent his son. We remembered him this morning. We remembered his sacrifice on the cross. He came down, he lived a perfect life, and he died on that cross for you and for me. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death so that you and I could have a relationship with him. 
And it's simply a matter of turning from our sin and following after him. We make him king of our lives. And we, will, and we live in a restored relationship with him. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus loves you. Would you pray with me?